0: Judges 7:16 through 8:21. And he divided the three men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands and all of them empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as, as far as beth Shittah, um, toward toward Zerah, as far as the border of ebel Mohelem, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Nathali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. <coughs> Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as beth barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as beth barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought out the Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. (coughs) Sorry. Technical difficulties. then the men of Ephraim said to him what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian and they accused him fiercely and he said to them what have I done now in comparison with you is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebezer God has given into your hands the princes of Midian Oreb and Zeb what have I been able to do in comparison with you then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed <coughs> over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he had said to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalumuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna?" already in your hand that they should be given bread or that they should give bread to your army so gideon said well then when the lord has given Zeba and zelmuna into my hand i will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars and from there he went up to penula and spoke to them in the same way and the men of penula answered him as the men of Succoth had answered and he said to the men of Penula, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkur with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbehah and, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Ares, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. He went down for for him, the officials, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penula and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are your men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jather, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zelmuna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zelmuna, and he took the crescent ordnance that were on his necks of their camels. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, your word is, word is full of wisdom. God, I pray that that wisdom, Lord, would, would find us today. God, that your spirit would um, just be free to to speak to our hearts here, God, and that um, Pastor Duncan, God, would would be um, filled with your spirit, Lord, and his words um, would only be of you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, as you just heard Brian read, we continue in Judges. Uh, Once again, we're focusing on Gideon. There's about four weeks total we're going to spend on Gideon. Last week, just to get us caught up just a little bit, we saw that although God had clearly called Gideon to deliver the Jews from the Midianite hordes that had been plundering them, Gideon has a lot of trouble believing God would actually do for him what he promised. So, God graciously stoops down to Gideon's unbelief by giving him two miraculous signs involving this woolen fleece. Next, Because God wants all the glory for the coming victory over the Midianites, he tells Gideon his army is much too large for the much larger 132,000-man army of the Midianites. So Gideon first cuts his troops down to 10,000 and then only to 300, which means the ratio is about 45 to 1. About this time, seeing that he's so far outnumbered, Gideon's faith again falters, So God graciously, once again, eases Gideon's doubts by enabling him to overhear a conversation predicting God's victory through him over the Midianites. So that bolstered his faith, and so when we left him last week, we saw him ready to take his tiny army into combat, this daunting Midianite foe, and that story you just heard read to you. The further we go into this narrative, and this is the same for most of the judges, the further we move into the narrative, the more we see the frailty and sinfulness of the judge. This text and the next one that we'll be looking at about Gideon display what is really motivating Gideon. And that's very revealing. Last week we saw that Gideon was doubting. He was immature. The rest of the Gideon story shows us something a little more deep about him. Uh, We get to see what makes Gideon tick. We get a clear picture of what was the motivating force behind Gideon's actions because the narrator chooses to reveal specific details that expose his heart to us. From this part of the story, we see Gideon's faithlessness, his vindictiveness, and his deceitfulness, just to name three. His main problem was, however, a little deeper than that. His main problem that generated all the others was that he was a very self-centered guy. When you come right down to it, Gideon lived only for Gideon. He certainly didn't live for God. And at the end of the day, Gideon's agenda was not the glory of God. It was the glory and satisfaction of Gideon. And as we'll see, this story powerfully reveals that. Because of this, like most of the judges, Gideon is a powerful negative example for us. When you look at Gideon's life, there are far more things to avoid about him than there are to emulate. God provides us these kinds of negative examples in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, so that we can learn from them. But also, as God reveals them to us, we get to see his great patience and his great mercy to them, and that's a comfort to us. Well, as we look through this story, we can pick out perhaps three expressions of Gideon's self-centeredness. That's three that I found, anyway. The first expression of his man-centeredness or of his self-centeredness in Gideon, it's also a temptation, as are all of these, that we face, and that is making our relationship with God and what we do for him as much about ourselves as it is about God. Making our relationship with God and what we do for him as much about ourselves as it is about God. We see this in verses 18 to 20, where Gideon uses God's deliverance as a means to pursue his own personal glory. He uses God's deliverance as a means to pursue his own personal glory. I don't know if you caught that or not, but it's pretty clear. God has given Gideon this seemingly ridiculous battle plan of his men surrounding the Midianite camp with 300 men armed with torches that are covered up with clay jars or pots so that the light can't be seen, and trumpets. That's the battle plan. Gideon explains to his truth that at the moment of the battle charge that they would uncover their torches so that light would scare the people evidently and scream out as their battle cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And we know from verse 20 that when the moment of truth came and the battle cry went up, These Midianites were awakened, and they proceeded to run around and hack each other up like senseless maniacs. Verse 22 tells us that it was the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So God obviously creates a supernatural sense of chaos and confusion because from everything in this narrative, we see that most if not all, almost, of the 120,000 Midianites who were killed, most of them are killed right here by their own people. So this gives new meaning to the word friendly fire. These men aren't mistakenly lobbing missiles at people five miles away. They're stabbing the guy next to them. This is a supernatural act of divine deliverance, and that brings us back to this battle cry. A sword for the Lord. And for Gideon, what's that about? After all that God has done to make sure that this battle and its outcome are all about him, what on earth prompts Gideon to think this has anything to do with him? Compare that battle cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, with David's battle cry as he faces down Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Notice where David's focus is in this battle cry. Then David said to the Philistine, that's Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Where's his focus? David is saying to these Philistines, you think this battle is about swords and spears and a giant and a teenager, but this is really to show you that there's a God in Israel. And the reason you, Goliath, are about to part with your head and the reason why the rest of the army is going to be mutated into bird food is because my God wants to show you that this is his victory. See, it's God-centered. This wasn't about David. This was about god contrast that with a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Isn't it big of Gideon to give God top billing here? The problem, of course, as we've seen so far throughout the book of Judges, God doesn't want first billing. He wants exclusive billing because he does all the decisive work, every bit of it. Again, do we really believe that God intentionally makes this undeniably impossible for Gideon so that he can affix his name to it somehow? In the context, if God doesn't cause these Midianites to hack each other up, these 300 Jewish warriors are going to be quickly decimated. God did every bit of the decisive work. Here's what Gideon did. He led 300 men to blow their trumpets and break some clay pots. That's what he did regular George Patton. This is not an equal partnership. Yet Gideon commands him to say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. In these moments just before the battle, when Gideon should have been in his most humble demeanor looking to God, he's shouting nonsense about a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. God wants us to be burning with zeal for his glory And if our hearts are right, our focus will be on God and what he can do, especially in these moments of great testing. We will see mostly irrelevant and probably in the way. Gideon's response here utterly betrays a God-centered heart. He doesn't have one. So a good question for us is, as we read this, well, how how do we know if we're ministering from a man-centered or self-centered perspective or from a God-centered heart? Now there are lots of answers to that, but let's just look at one that's pretty easy. It's found, number one, in how dependent we are on God, not ourselves. If we're dependent on God, it's more God-centered. Ourselves, more likely to be self-centered. And the best way to see how dependent we are on God is in our prayer life. In this entire narrative, the only persistent prayer we see coming from Gideon are his repeated calls for God to give him more assurance that he's going to keep his word. That's his prayer. It's as we see the amount of prayer, the content of our prayer, and the timing of our prayer that we see really who we're depending on and whose glory we're seeking. Let's think first just very briefly about the amount of prayer. If we have an active and we have a vital prayer life, you're much more likely to be living and ministering for God's glory than for your own. If our prayer life is weak, that's a good indicator that our life and ministry is more about us than God, because if it were about God, we'd be in more frequent contact with him. Lord, let me live for you today. Father, keep me in your will. See, if our lives are really dependent upon God, we just don't have any other option but to pray for his help, for his blessing, and for his power. If your life, if your ministry is about God seeking after what will glorify him, if that's your heart, you're going to pray, whether it's about loving your neighbor or parenting your kids or teaching Sunday school. But it's not just the amount of prayer. You can also tell an awful lot about how God-centered you are by the content of your prayer. If when you pray about a particular endeavor, your prayer sounds something like, Oh God, please don't let me mess up. Please help me to do really well okay, that's probably more about you than God because it's about how well you will do without any reference to God or his name or his fame or his glory. Finally, the timing of our prayers can also be a good indicator of whether our hearts are centered on God or more on ourselves. If our prayers are deeply, if our prayers are limited mostly to those moments when we're in trouble, if our prayer life really takes a hike in those moments, when it goes back to next to nothing when we're not in those moments, well, that's probably not a good sense. When you sense deeply your need, and that's when you pray, you're not turning to God out of zeal for his glory. If your prayers are like last-minute flares sent up for God to come rescue you, you may be just trying to calm your nerves. Also, if after the challenge, and God has provided, and you, if you don't feel a strong compulsion to go back and thank him profusely for his ministry to you, it's more about you than about God, because you don't feel that strong pull to say, this is about God, he did it, so praise the Lord. Okay? A second symptom of his self-centeredness, his man-centeredness, is really just another form of making our lives and activities about ourselves. We do this when we're guilty of pursuing our own personal agendas in God's name pursuing our own personal agendas in God's name. Gideon does that over and over in this story. It's bad enough that Gideon makes his ministry more about himself and God. Even worse is when he uses God and his resources for his own personal and sinful pursuits. We see this in verses 4 to 19 of chapter 8. Gideon's agenda was dominated by his own self-centered goal of taking personal vengeance on those who had mistreated him and the army. Recall that as Gideon is leading his battle-weary troops in pursuit of these Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, he comes to the town of Succoth, and he asks his fellow Israelites for bread. That's what we heard in the story. Well, the arrogant leaders of Succoth say to him in 8.6, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Hear what they're saying? When these men of Succoth see their fellow Jews exhausted from battle... They refuse to feed them, and they imply that they're only going to be worthy of their support after they've defeated these two Midianite kings, okay? Well, this is a heartless attitude from these men of Succoth, but it hardly justifies Gideon's response. You recall that after completing the mission and killing these Midianite kings, rather than stopping to praise God for his victory, Gideon's main concern is retribution on his fellow Jews at Succoth. So he brings his army back to the city and literally tears the flesh of these men, scourging them with thorns. The author also intentionally chooses to include a second, very similar response from Gideon to reassure us of his self-centeredness. When his fellow Jews at Penuel also refused to feed his hungry men, those men paid even more dearly for their inhospitality. Gideon not only tears down the defensive tower guarding the city, he also kills all the Jews in the town. Again, when Gideon should have been worshiping God for his victory over his enemies, his main concern is about settling scores with his fellow Israelites. You know, the battle's over. You won. <laughs> that ought to be enough. As petty as these men were in not coming to his aid, and they were clearly petty, they'd done nothing to warrant capital punishment according to the law of Moses. Moses. We know from 819 that Gideon was thinking only of himself. That's where Gideon questions these two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, about the men they'd killed at Tabor. He's interested in what happened there. That's where he's from. Now remember, according to the laws concerning holy wars, which is what he's operating under, these men were God's enemies. And as God's enemies, they had to have been executed. That was the call of God on Gideon from day one. But when Gideon finds out that they had killed his two brothers, he says in verse 19, as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. See, that's a problem. Gideon's self-focus had caused him to lose sight of who was in command of this mission and what he was doing, okay? You would assume that would be hard to do when you've just seen a huge army miraculously self-destruct. For Gideon, the deciding factor in whether or not to kill these two Midianite kings was not the fact that God had charged him to kill these enemies of God. It was instead, these two guys killed my brothers. And he says if they hadn't done this, he'd spare their lives and allow these pagans to live against God's clear commands. Gideon is motivated by what these men did to him, to his family. He was willing to spare these men who had made life so miserable for his fellow Jews for the last seven years. Gideon's all about Gideon. Also, don't forget whose army Gideon is using to extract his personal vengeance. It wasn't his army. It was God's army. He uses God's army to carry out his own personal vendetta against his enemies, including his fellow Israelites. So he's turning Jew against Jew here. Don't miss that the author tells this story in a way that helps us see this grand irony. And the irony is when you contrast how Gideon treats his fellow Jews at Succoth and Penuel with how God treated Gideon earlier in the program. These men of Succoth and Penuel were just like Gideon. They don't trust him, Gideon. These men didn't trust Gideon to win the victory and they refuse to go along with him until he proves himself. Sound familiar? When Gideon had earlier refused to trust God to give him the victory over the enemy, when he requires more proof of God's power, God doesn't rake his back with thorns. He doesn't execute him. He doesn't condemn Gideon and pour out his judgment on him, even though he could have done that in the light of his unbelief. When God meets Gideon, who is filled with doubts, he shows him patience and benevolence and tons of grace. The story reminds us of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. You remember him. After having been forgiven a debt of a million dollars, he goes and throttles some poor guy who owes him 20 bucks. God has been so gracious in the face of Gideon's previous arrogance and unbelief, yet when he's given a dose of his own medicine, he responds like the thug he is. Thoroughly self-centered, and we see it so easily in ourselves, too. When someone hurts us, as these men hurt Gideon, do we employ the truth found in Proverbs 19.11? Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, glory, it is his glory to overlook an offense. How many offenses do we choose to overlook? Not because we're afraid to make a deal out of it, but because these things have genuinely hurt us, but you choose not to pursue it, and just forgive the person. Do we do that? Or do we give in to our self-centered longing for being recompensed or apologized to for every perceived slight? Now don't misunderstand, there are times when confrontation is is not only something that is is appropriate, it's mandated, okay? So there's things are there, but there are so many of those smaller-scale remarks or misunderstandings that we should just overlook and drop at the feet of Jesus. And back to the main point of using God's resources to further our own agendas, as we said earlier, when we're giving a challenging task, and we cry out to God for help, and God does help us, he works in us, and it goes well, and we receive recognition, and we don't go back and thank him and praise him, that communicates to God that, God, I'll take your provision, but I'm not going to be grateful to you for it which communicates that we're using God for our purposes. To help, We need you, God, to help us accomplish our mission rather than I want to be used for your glory to do something. The third symptom of a self-centered heart that we see in Gideon is leaning on the power of our personalities and gifts instead of trusting in God and the truth. We see this in Gideon's interaction with his men with Ephraim. Gideon employs the 300 troops to fight against the Midianites as God had commanded him. But then, as God's enemies are retreating, Gideon calls on reinforcements from other tribes. That wasn't part of God's plan, so he's freelancing a bit here. And in 723 and 24, he calls on the men of these four neighboring tribes to help the cleanup operation after they've mostly killed one another. And the men of these tribes, Ephraim one of the tribes, they capture the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and they return back to Gideon, not only with these leaders, but they also bring a complaint against Gideon. The men of Ephraim tell Gideon in 8.1, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. That's a pretty good translation because the scholars tell us that the wording here indicates that these people from Ephraim were really ticked off at Gideon. They were really mad that he didn't call them in so that they could share in the glory. They didn't like the idea of being snubbed. And so rather than thank Gideon and the army for their deliverance from the Midianites, they show their pettiness by confronting him about why they weren't allowed to share in the victory. We know the reason that God didn't call on Ephraim or any of the tribes is because God told Gideon he wanted only 300 troops. See, we know that. 300 troops so that God's glory could be preserved in the eyes of the Jews. A miraculous victory. But when the men of Ephraim call Gideon on the carpet for this, how does he respond? He could have easily said, Well, fellas, it's like this. God wanted all the glory, and so he personally called me to bring only 300 men into battle. If I would have called you in, God's glory would have been jeopardized, and I would have been violating a direct command of Yahweh. If you have a problem with me not calling on you, your problem is with God's plan, not me. That's straightforward, that's direct, that's the truth. Would have been a good way to handle it, but he shows himself here to be a fairly slick, insincere person by employing flattery. He's a very charming fellow. You could tell Gideon had probably made his way out of several different scrapes by his tongue. When he's pressed, rather than tell the truth and trust God, he immediately leans on his charming personality. What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleanings of the grapes of Ephraim, the gleanings were what was left over, better than the grape harvest of Ebiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? The fact that Gideon uses flattery and he injects God into the situation only makes it worse because he's using God's name in vain, because he's only doing it in the hopes of getting these Ephraimites off his back. Now some may object, well, wait a minute, I think you're being a little too hard. Doesn't the Proverbs tell us that a soft answer turns away wrath? Isn't Gideon just trying to be gracious here? This isn't being gracious. It's being cowardly and it's being deceptive. When we're told that a soft answer turns away wrath, that's not a license to exchange truth for schmoozing. Gideon here sacrifices the God-glorifying truth on the altar, the altar of his own personal safety, and he gives us yet one more example of his lack of faith in God to deliver him from those who oppose him. Instead of trusting God, he goes to flattery. Instead of trusting God to vindicate it and telling these men the truth, he leans on what has doubtless gotten him out of a lot of scrapes in the past, charm. You never do that, do you? Instead of telling someone the hard truth, it's easy instead to smooth your way past an uncomfortable situation. Some are better at it than others. And we dare not miss being gracious or winsome, or schmoozing Galatians 6.1 tells us we need to be gentle when we tell someone the truth but sometimes no matter how gentle we are the truth is hard to hear and it's hard to say God's call to us is simply speak the truth in love not skate around the issue with flattery or charm or some other strength of our personality perhaps the most dangerous thing about leaning on our own natural strengths instead of God is as this story illustrates it works It often works. Works. Gideon's flattery assuages these men. Verse 3 says, Then their anger with him subsided when he said this. But we mustn't evaluate the success of an endeavor based on whether or not it worked. Okay? The reason why that's a bad measure of success is because we need to go deeper and ask the question, Work to do what? Did it work to get you out of a scrape? That's not the objective for the believer. Our objective is to bring honor and glory to God. If it, motivated, if it wasn't motivated by that goal, then it was a failure, even if it got us out of the scrape. Gideon's flattery relieved the pressure of the situation, but it didn't honor God. He had the truth, which would have. The fact that something accomplishes what we desire in no way means it's the right thing when what we desire is self-centered and not God-centered. That value system can sound very... Four, in our culture where pragmatism reigns. And the question is often not, is God being honored in this? But rather is, will this solve the problem? We all know from experience that people who are really good at schmoozing or charming or flirting get what they want a good bit of the time. This works. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with charm or diplomacy or personal gifts. Some of them are given by God. It depends on how it's used. But if we're leaning on those instead of God and the truth, we're going to be a failure in God's eyes, even if we succeed in the world's eyes and the church's eyes. George MacDonald said something profound. He said, anything done apart from God is destined to either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. Anything done apart from God is destined to either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. You get that? There are many, many impressive but miserable successes in the church today that look very good on the outside, but on the inside they're hollow and empty because they aren't done for God's glory or independence upon his power. If, they, if they're done strictly in the power of the flesh, whatever we have through technology or whatever, purely through the power of personality or organization or technology, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that they're wood, hay, and stubble, and in the time of testing at the day of judgment, they're going to burn. They won't make it. If, Gideon's, if this story in Gideon tells us anything, it is God will never share his glory with humanity, no matter how gifted or resourceful or charming they may be. When Gideon's back is up against the wall, rather than trust in God, who's already done such miraculous things for him, instead, he chooses to flatter. This is man-centered, and we see it in ourselves, we need to confess it and repent of it. When the chips are down and we need to produce, where do we put our trust? How God-centered are we? The text gives us a great text, a test that Gideon failed dismally. That is, when someone pins you to the wall, gets in your face about something you've said or done, how do you respond? Do we tell the truth, even if it means admitting a personal failure? Even if it means saying, no, the problem, I think, is with you. Or do we wimp out and lean on our ability to argue or defend or charm or bend the truth in ways that will often work but reveal a man-centered heart? Gideon's main problem wasn't that he was prideful or vindictive or prayerless or deceptive. All those problems flowed out of the fact that Gideon was for Gideon and not God. And these stories call us to ask ourselves, who's my heart for? Is it more self-centered like Gideon? Or is it more centered on God? And as with all things, our model ultimately is Jesus. When he was standing before the Sanhedrin with his life on the line, as those Jewish leaders made all those false charges against him, does anybody believe that he couldn't have extricated himself from that situation if he would wanted to? Many things would have worked to accomplish that objective. He could have argued with them. He out-argued them every time he talked to them, made fools out of them. He could have stopped their beating hearts with a single thought. But like a sheep before its shears, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He said nothing. He did nothing because the objective was not safety or getting out of the scrape. It was dying as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of his people and for the glory of his Father. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins because he was sent here not for his own safety, but to save people like us and bring honor to God. As we allow the complete God-centeredness of Jesus' death on the cross to increasingly seep down into our hearts, it'll make us far less inclined to trust in ourselves, far less inclined to act for our own glory. As we focus more and more on his selflessness in dying for us, we find it far easy to live for him and for others than for ourselves. May God give us the grace to make our relationship with God more about him than ourselves, to pursue his glory and to lean on him and not ourselves, not our gifts, and to do it for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the examples that you place in Scripture. We know this book is, is about you ultimately, but you do give us these examples. Our great positive example is Jesus But so many others, like Gideon, we read them and it feels like we're looking in a mirror. At least it feels that way to me sometimes. Father, thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving us enough to give us your inerrant word that we can see ourselves in these people. And thank you, God, for the blood of Jesus that enables us to find forgiveness. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to repent and leave those things which grieve you and live life anew. Thank you for your love that's steadfast, that's with us every moment, even when we're acting like jerks like Gideon. Thank you, God, for that. Father, as we go to the table now, help us to focus on Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.